Hello, world, and welcome to another fun, fun episode of... <clears throat> had a throat bubble there. Of Here's a Guy! I'm Alex. I'm coming to you from St. Louis. Yeah, as I said before we start, I'm, I'm drinking a Topo Chico, so I got all all kinds of weird burps and shit going on. Um, this is the uncut version of Here's a Guy. <laughs> we're, we're not editing anything out. I For a second, I thought we were doing Belchcast. It's it a real raw open. I liked it. Yeah, leaving in all the all, all the unpleasant stuff and not editing it out. Very different from how we usually handle things. Um, <laughs> so I'm Alex. I'm coming to you from St. Louis. I'm joined by my usual uh, uh, cast of characters. Um, I'll actually start with with you, Jack John, coming to you from Indianapolis first. Um, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing great. My my wife and I had our uh, our 36 week baby appointment. Uh, it's getting closer. It's getting. Uh, more real. It's uh, very exciting times in the uh, in the Jack John household. Certainly sounds like it. Um, we're also so is 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 this the one where they tell you that the baby's an alien? Uh, we've known that for I think like ten weeks now. Uh, but we okay. did see uh, confirmation though that its tail is coming in at uh, the appropriate levels. Uh, we can okay, expect yeah. the. Oh, uh, don't want an extra long tail that causes problems yeah, right, early right. in early in a young alien's life. Right. We can expect the uh, the xenomorph birth to uh, to happen uh, in the in the coming weeks. Well, thoughts out to Laura. Um, we're it also... can't be much worse than the traditional way of giving <laughs> Say, birth. Honestly, yeah. <laughs> there's, really, there's no there's no pleasant way to go about it. I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. At least after something bursts out of your chest, you'd get to die afterwards. <laughs> Laura's gonna have to go home and raise a child. <laughs> And also, we're gonna have a baby. Yeah, rub some fucking dirt on it. Yeah, <laughs> don't say rub some dirt on it. In the context <laughs> of giving birth. You know what I mean? <laughs> Very unsanitary. Um, and uh, as you just heard, giving his his thoughts on um, on the miracle of childbirth. We're also joined by Cody, uh, coming to us from Illinois. And I, I went with you last because there there's something going on in your life that is. Well, as we're seeing evidence of it on the screen right here that I figure you probably wanted to talk about. Yeah, so um, I finally uh, joined my my fellow Here's a Guy and Here's an Adventure compadres in in getting myself a furry roommate. So yeah. my, uh, my cat Loretta is sitting on my lap right now and just being an absolute ham, uh, living, living her best <laughs> life. Uh, it's been an interesting couple of days. Uh, the reason I didn't have a cat before is not because I didn't want one, but because I am not technically allowed to have one here. But, like, I, the way I rationalize it is, number one, I have literally seen my landlord once since I moved into this place. Yeah, you, He does you... not live in town. He does not come here often. Number two, there's enough wrong with my brain. I could probably get her classified a therapy animal if I wanted to. So, right. it It's the old adage of... If your landlord doesn't know you have it, then you don't have it. Um, yeah, that's what I said about that bathtub gin still I had out in the garage for a while. <laughs> you had a good garage for a bathtub gin stall, honestly. That's true. I, I've actually considered uh, brewing in my garage. So the, the, but the... Uh, that's 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 a project for another day when I <laughs> get this little goblin settled in a little bit more. <clears throat> the, the the full backstory of Loretta was in the fall after our, our grandfather passed away. It was the day that I was actually, the, the day of his funeral, um, a bunch of us went out there because we were in the process of like, you know, dividing up all his stuff and just kind of going through all of it and seeing, you know, after the, 
you know, after my, my mom and her siblings, you know, got their initial pick of stuff, you know, kind of any of, any of us, any of the, the, the grandkids could come by and, and pick out anything they wanted. And I was there, but after I left, um, my mom and my aunts were just about to leave and they went out to my grandpa's potting shed and they found living out there was this little cat. And, um, Aww. my, my parents are in the place where they have, they have a, a couple cats. They live out on a farm and they really need like a full time outside barn cat. And so my mom Which took used to never be a problem right. because there used to be like 15 of them just right. living there. As soon as they realized that my dad would feed literally any animal, uh, yeah. that became a very happening spot for the local local fauna. So she brought Loretta home, and the idea was that Loretta was going to be an outside kitty. They put her in the garage at first to acclimate, but that got if Loretta refused <laughs> to live outside. Like, you wouldn't think mm -hmm. that a cat could force that issue that much, but no, she just straight up refused to live out there. So um, now Cody has wound up with her. If she was living in my parents' garage for a good while, um, one of their inside cats is really, it, very much like Freddy, just does not like other cats yeah. at all. Um, and the reason her name is Loretta, easy, she's currently chomping my wrist. Um, the reason I named her Loretta was, um, so our grandpa, one thing he loved was old country music, and mm -hmm. they brought home this cat who was not very big, but had this real feisty attitude, and she also, her nose is mostly pink, but it's got some black around the edges, so it always looks dirty. It's like, you are a coal miner's daughter if you are nothing else. So, um, <laughs> yeah, everyone, welcome in uh, Loretta Lynn to the Here's a Guy crew. Yep. Yep, Cody is finally experiencing the joys of cat ownership. Um, now, I, I'm I'm actually, there, there's a bit of a weird role reversal, and it's, it's funny you mention um, old country singers, because there's some, believe it or not, there's a segue here. Like, it, for a while, it's that I was the cat guy, but I, I who also wanted to be a vinyl guy, and Cody was the vinyl mm -hmm. guy who also wanted to be a cat guy. Well, we've kind of both fulfilled all these needs simultaneously. Um, over Christmas, Sarah got me a turntable. It's a, 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 you know, a hobby that I always pretended like I didn't want to get involved in, because mainly because the hobby is such a money pit, but like... It is. I, I had so much fun buying them for other people. Um, I think she could tell. Yeah. And I just, on Monday for the holiday, I went and had my first true uh, record store exploration. At first, she she got me the turntable and she got me two records. She got me Blink-182's Greatest Hits and Patsy Cline's Greatest Hits, which oh, was a great yeah. start. Interesting. <laughs> and then... That is an interesting well, choice for you. Well, what she said... In fairness, so the Patsy Cline record, I think how she explained it was like, well, this, you know, I, I got it for myself, but I'm going to store it here. But like, she doesn't have a turntable. So it is, okay. it, it's essentially a shared ownership thing at this point. And we did listen to it the other night. It's very lovely, um, as you might imagine. I, I do like Patsy Cline. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, I Fall to Pieces is like an emo classic. So, yeah. Um, so she got me those. In fact, she said it at the vinyl store when she checked those two out, the, uh, the cashier complimented her, said, I, I like your style. I like what you got going on. So then when we were at a... So, a yeah, vinyl is a money pit. And the way that I get around that is, like, that's a great... When people ask for, like, birthday or Christmas ideas for me, 
that's where like 90% of my vinyl comes from. Yeah. I yeah. do not buy vinyl for myself. <laughs> so, and that, that not only gives other people who are looking for something to get me, cause you know, I'm not the easiest guy in the world to buy for it. That that's, that gives them something to look at. And also, um, you know, I, I don't have to spend hundreds of dollars on vinyl. Yeah. Uh, case in point, uh, when I was going to have my wedding, uh, I still got married, but when I was going to have my like non-COVID wedding, uh, my groomsman gift for you uh, was a like limited edition Wonder Years vinyl. So definitely yeah. buying vinyl for other people, a lot of fun. Uh, Which, by the way, is still one of my favorite albums that I own. It's such a beautiful is, cover, too. Uh, yeah, it's Sister Cities, and it's got like a book with it. Mm-hmm. full of like pictures and notes on the record also the pattern on the album is really really cool it's one of those clear vinyls with like a, a blue splash periodically across it It almost looks kind of nautical it's really neat yeah. that's one of my favorite things actually about buying vinyl is opening it up and seeing what the actual record looks like yes, yeah of, absolutely a lot of bands are really really getting creative with it they've got I own uh, one of my favorite looking vinyls is uh, I have Ice Nine Kills Silver Scream with the like limited edition blood spatter. Hell so, yeah. Yeah. For a, for a horror movie and metal nerd like me, that's that's about as good as it gets. Yeah, I, I so over the weekend, my parents were down here and we went to like a cool um, antique shop we hadn't been to. And one of my finds there was I, I found uh, Slayer's Rain and Blood. I'm like, well, I'm getting that. Ooh. Um, yeah, you got to. That's one I do not have. Yeah. And so um, then on, on Monday, we Sarah and I went to Vintage Vinyl here in St. Louis. See, that's that's something that, if, if from your perspective, Cody, of not wanting to spend too much money on this hobby, that is an advantage you have that Jack and I don't have, which is that Jack and I both live in or around major cities with good record stores. Yeah. yeah. Like, when I'm a 10-minute so, drive from Vintage Vinyl, it's very, very hard to resist the temptation, you know? <laughs> so let me plug a local business here, because this place just opened up in my town, uh, Jacksonville, Illinois, for those who don't know. I don't mind you knowing. Um, there is a new... Uh, it's a very small business, and they have a, a fairly limited amount of stuff, but it's uh, a locally-owned record shop called Pizza Records, and uh, every record, they give you, a, a like, a pizza box case with oh. pizza records and stuff on it. Um, all of their... I, I've only been inside the place once, haven't bought anything, but it, it's really neat, and if you're in the area and looking to start uh, a record collection, there you go. Another, another yeah. really cool, one of several really neat local businesses we've had move in. Yeah. So I went to vintage vinyl and I, I'd already justified with myself. Like I'm going to drop some money in here because I want to have like a small starting record collection. Like I'm going to spend about, I mean, you got it. I got to bite yeah. the bullet early on. Like I'm going to spend about, you know, state workers probably about to get a raise here in Missouri. That's kind of how I justified it. Um, I'm going to drop about 200 bucks in this place. And I wound up buying six records. That is an easy thing to do. Yeah. Vintage vinyl. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I went up buying six records in a refrigerator magnet. So my record so, collection now stands as such. Um, and I, I wanted to get your, your, both of your thoughts on this. So it's now Patsy Cline's greatest hits, Blink 182's greatest hits, Slayer's rain and blood, modern baseball. You're going to miss it all. Oh, fucking 10 out of 10. Taking Back Sunday, Tell All Your Friends, My Morning Jacket, Evil Urges, The Menzingers, On the Impossible Past, All Time Low, So Wrong It's Right, and Green Day's American Idiot, which was one of the... I, I think every record collection needs that one. 
I I have two of those. I have Someone Wrong, It's Right, and American Idiot. You're getting some good staples out of the way there, definitely. Um, see, what I'm trying to think of the first batch of records. I So my, my record collecting has been kind of sporadic. I first got a turntable in high school, actually. And like when it was really neat then, I had some records. My dad had a bunch, and I've, I've still got a fair amount of his here at my place. But I, I kind of stopped collecting for a little while in college because I didn't have anywhere to put the turntable. That just stayed at mom and dad's place. Or, it, see or, any, or any money, for that it. matter. Also, yes. Any um, money that wasn't but, dedicated to booze. Yeah. Or food. Or, you know, other things that were <laughs> unsavory. Anyway. Um, yeah, there was a lot of... Uh, a lot of years where I, I didn't really do a whole lot of vinyl collecting. And in recent years, I've started to really get into it again. And I found that, I mean, it feels basic as hell when you buy, like, the staples... But it, it looks so much better in your collection. And also, sometimes you just want to sit back and listen to a great record the way it was meant to be listened to. And, yeah. you know, one of the more recent ones that I've gotten that uh, I didn't have before, it took me the longest time uh, to get this, I drug my feet for so long, was uh, Fleetwood Mac's Rumors. Yeah. Um, That's a classic everyone has, yeah. I still say the best vinyl listening experience I've had so far, just as a, a record that is meant to be a record that flows beautifully is uh, one of my prized pieces. Uh, I've got a special edition of Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Uh -huh. Ooh, I'll throw that yeah. on every once in a while yeah. and just you just get lost. Yeah, that's in that's in my must gets at this point. <clears throat> I need to build up some more of the classics. Um, so yeah, that's what we got going on. Um, and you know. As I mentioned before, we have a mailbox. Here's a mailbox at gmail.com. So if any of you want to share your record collections or give any thoughts, hit us up. Um, actually, there's actually another clean segue out of this. How about that? Because there's a third thing we're going to do. Um, we had what turned out to be a bit of a half-baked idea last month, which was um, the, the here's a guy gift exchange. And I say half-baked because I think the message was lost on me that we'd committed to that bit. Um, so I did not get either of these two shit. Um, Cody's gift for Jack was also, uh, his baby gift, um, yeah. which yeah. I also got Jack a baby gift, but as we mentioned, I had the flu and couldn't go to the party. So I'm just going to have to mail it yeah. to you. I, I actually got, yeah, I actually kind of included Laura in the gift exchange as well. So for, for Jack, I got diapers and uh, a book to read to, to little Jack, Jack, when he makes his appearance, but I brought Laura some homemade pickles. So yeah. Yeah, I, th I think my debt has been paid. Yes, Jack, absolutely. You have a very cute baby gift coming your way once it gets to you. It is very, it, it's like you just look at it and it's disgustingly cute. So, oh, um, I cannot you, wait. You'll see what I mean. <laughs> and for Cody, here's how I'll justify it. Um, I just like bought you Christmas gifts, like for Christmas. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think they're pretty, like, I got you two, I got you a couple records. I know I got the new Wonder yep. Years. I cannot remember. Oh, it's a Slipknot I got you. Slipknot, Ooh, Volume fuck. 3, which yeah. is oh, another fuck one yeah. of my new favorites. Yeah. And also, I got you a, an ACDC clock that lights up. So, I'll, you know, which is currently sitting right above my record player right now. Right. <laughs> Hell so yeah. I've got I've got my little rock and roll shrine over there. So, um, we we have like a really half-ass gift exchange to do. Then <laughs> Cody has one gift from Jack John to open. Yeah. I have two because Cody he also got me Christmas gifts, but he got me something else, and I have my gift from Jack. So how about we do this? How about yeah? How about let me see. We'll start open with open mine first. Okay. Yeah. Let's. I'll start and I'll open what I'll see what Jack got me. Yeah. 
Alright, here we have some live unboxing. I think this shit's popular on uh, YouTube or whatever. With the YouTube kids, yeah. 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 We can be you. fancy. We can embed a video into Spotify one day if, if I ever if I ever send that over to you. I, I have a video of one of the episodes. I don't remember which one, but all right, here we go. Okay, I've opened a box and there are wrapped gifts inside. Yes. So the big one I want you to open first. Okay. Let's see what we got here. Very lovely wrapping paper. Thank you. I actually really I picked that wrapping paper specifically for you. I see hops. Ooh. A craft beer making kit. Now this will be useful. So full context, years ago, Cody and I were gifted a beer making kit that was like not very high quality and then we just never did it. And I've you know, I've regretted it ever since. So Yeah, here's I my mulligan. Give that a try. Yeah. This, and I, I, I also got a hot sauce making kit for Christmas, so I'm going to have a fun oh, yeah. year, I think. Yeah. I, I had to pick a different kind of beer that I thought you might like, so I went with that one. It's uh, it's not a traditional beer, but it sounded fun. And let's see in the um, Mickey Mouse wrapping paper, the small part of it, appears to be what Jack John has gifted me. And, you know, Jack John, you're lucky that I love you, because otherwise I would throw this horse shit right in the trash. He's given me the, a Blu-ray of the 2013 film, Now You See Me, my least favorite film of all time. That's a What's good great. That's a good bit. <laughs> What's great about that one is not only is it a Blu-ray, it's also a DVD. Yeah. And a digital edition. You got, you got the three best versions of it. So I think what I'm getting at is what I'm going to have to do for this show, because I care about our listeners, I am going to have to hate rewatch this and, and provide my thoughts. If we ever have an episode that we've, we feel comfortable running long, um, <laughs> we, we can put that on deck. Okay. That, maybe that can be my other gift to you, Jack. The gift that keeps right. on giving. Do you want to open yours for me, or do you want me to open mine from Jack? Let, let's see what you got from Jack. Okay. Some, some reindeer and elves and foxes here on the wrapping paper. An Amazon box. O only the finest wares, of course. Yeah. <laughs> what is this? We have a burlap sack with mean mugging on the outside. <laughs> That's encouraging. Man, what is in here? We have what what looks to be seems to be a hunter's horn of some sort. <laughs> is this a good old, good old drinking horn? Did I say is that a drinking, drinking horn? horn? Yep. That's it's a, a drinking horn, and it's got a, it's got a stand that goes yeah. along with it. And I'll say that is a classic kind of thing that that would go well with all of your other stuff that you didn't have. Yeah, and right. I, I, that, this is exactly like that's the a other Cody shit gift I've got. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that's that's pretty much perfect. That's a Cody gift thinking, if I've ever seen one. I was thinking back to when I was in your apartment last year, and I was like, "What would go in Cody's apartment that isn't already in Cody's apartment?" <laughs> the drinking horn. What perfect. odds and ends do I not have? Yeah. Other way. Like yeah. Like so, finally. Oh, wow. Look at that. 
That's beautiful. So finally, that I'll, just, that I'll, we'll see what Cody got me. Also still in the Amazon Prime box. Oh, what Cody's got me is uh, um, a uh, 4K Ultra HD, Blu-ray and digital HD copy of, uh, what year did this come out? Like 20, like 18, 19? Of the Whenever It Came Out film, Now You See Me Too, which I've never seen. <laughs> but I, I, will, I will give this. Cannot possibly be worse than the first. So... Well, well, what I may just I, have to do is is sit down for a good old fashioned uh, hate movie review double feature for all of you. That's what well, I'm getting out of this. Um, I, I guess it's time we pull back the curtain here. Yes. Um, this is the entire reason we did this. This okay. is the yes. idea that Jack had. <laughs> Literally, the whole point of the gift exchange was an excuse to have you open copies of Now You See Me one and two on yes. the show. I, say, I so, thought you two were oddly passive about me not participating. In yeah, no, when you were like, so I don't have anything. And I was like, but you have two boxes with you. And you're like, yeah, but like, I didn't. I'm like, no, that's fine. That's the whole mission. When you <laughs> said, when you said, I'm going to have to sit down and watch this again. It took every ounce of self-control I had not to give you a table that thought. Oh, Jesus. I was like, I don't, I don't know yeah. if you want to set that precedent yet. Cause you're in for double duty if you're going to do it. Yeah. So, so as Cody alluded to, I texted him like a month and a half ago. I was like the beginning of December. And I like, I was like, so I just did some light Googling. Now you see me is incredibly cheap. And so is now you see me too. What if we secretly buy both of these for Alex, but guys it as a gift exchange for the show. So I can't help but notice looking at the cover of this. First of all, I did not know that fucking Harry Potter, Daniel Radcliffe is in the second one. I cannot imagine in what role. Shit, I forgot that. I never saw it, but I remember seeing it in the previews. Also, the 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 female lead has changed. I, I noticed Melanie Laurent's character is not featured on the front, which is is fitting because I still maintain that her character in that movie got her intelligence insulted and made to look like a complete buffoon, worse than almost any movie character I've ever seen, which was... Among the many, many, many problems that I had with the movie, maybe number one. So I guess she's just not in the second one. <laughs> so um, if it turns out that she came to her senses and dumped Mark Ruffalo's character's ass, then I'll, I'll take back some of the things I said. But yeah, I may be doing a, a, a hate watch double feature for yeah. you all. So so keep an eye out for that. Yeah, what? tune in for uh, next week's episode when this backfires in me and Jack's faces because now we have to listen to... The yeah. full extended director's <laughs> cut rant. That is, yeah. I, I hope you know what you've done. Yeah. We I, created I will, a monster, but damn it, it was worth it. I will say, I'm very proud of you, and only slightly disappointed that there wasn't just a tirade of the most colorful <laughs> waterfall of explicits I've ever heard directed at both of us. Like I say, wait for I'm the Very proud of you. Wait for the review. That's when, <laughs> if I'm really going to get upset about this bit, that'll be yeah. the time. We're we're very cordial right now. As soon as we hit stop recording, Alex is going to ream us for like forty five minutes. Like we just <laughs> cost like a college basketball game at the last second. <laughs> like tiki tack foul. Like you know the the video. He's gonna write us out of his will. <laughs> the video from uh, around the World Cup after Mexico got eliminated. The guy punching and then stabbing his TV set. <laughs> yes. It's gonna be me to the laptop. Yeah. Ah! Alex, 
Alex is going to Bobby Knight his own chair across the living room. <laughs> uh, Freddy's over there, so I could never, but <laughs> I'm tempted. He'd throw it back. Well, I hope you all enjoyed the uh, the inaugural Here's a Guy gift exchange. Uh, fittingly fucked up for how we tend to do things in pretty much every possible way. I just can't wait for this now to become every year each of us gets the other two something oh. that we know they hate. Yeah, it, it's the most <laughs> malicious gift exchange. The most malicious friendly gesture of all time. <laughs> the malicious gift exchange. That's not a bad idea, actually. Package, it's like <laughs> Jack John opens up a package. It's just a dead skunk or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I hit that three months ago. I've been saving it in the garage. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that very much. Um, but ultimately, this kind of thing, as fun as it is, that's not why we're here. We're here, as we all know, to talk about some guys. So let's get into it. Jack John, could you help me out, please? Uh, yeah, I think I remember it. It's uh, the guys. Terrific. Um, well, since I'm all energized now, I suppose I should go first. Um, my guy this week is none other than Mad Mike Hughes. Um, we're already leading off with a great nickname. That's a good sign. He was normal. <laughs> no, I, I know you're being facetious, and that's good that you're being facetious, because he's... Mad Mike Hughes is the furthest thing from normal. Um, <laughs> Mad Mike is at the intersection of two types of guys that we've touched on previously. One, daredevils. Two, conspiracy theorists. The results, oh, no. the results are actually quite fun, as we'll find out. So Mike was born in 1956 and grew up in Oklahoma City. Um, this was an era in America where a lot of young people became very interested in motorcycles, and that included Mike. Moreover, an offshoot of motorcycle culture that was taken off in that era was daredevil culture. Evil Knievel's rise to prominence came in the late 60s and early 70s. Mike was 15 years old when Evil Knievel jumped the Snake River Canyon, one of the most kick-ass moments in American history. Yep. And Mike was, you know, just right in that ideal target audience. Mike became really interested in this world of daredevil stunts. Um, and that was also true of a lot of young people at that time. The difference is that most of them either kind of just, you know, grow out of it. Or, like, they, they keep the interest at a bit of an arm's length. Like, they thought the stunts were cool, but that's never something they'd actually want to try themselves. I mean, for example... You know, Cody and I, our dad loved Evil Knievel as a kid, had a bunch of the, the toys. Oh, yeah. um, but, you know, he grew up and became a lawyer, like a normal person. Um, <laughs> that later, a person. Right. <laughs> yeah, in fact, more on that later. You're right. Um, so that's how, that's how most people approach that interest. But although Mad Mike's true legacy is debatable... One thing that's certainly true, he is not most people. As an adult... He's not most people, Mike. No, he is not... He's not, like, normal Mike Hughes. He's not average Mike Hughes. He's, he's not, not mild-mannered Mike Hughes. No, he's not middling Mike Hughes. As an adult, Mike... Milk toast, Mike Hughes. Yeah, there we go. Milk toast, Mike. That's just, like, a gross knockoff of Magic Mike. Oh. Can you imagine... Like a bunch just of very a, a strip <laughs> club with perfectly average men. Yeah, just very just very doughy guys in their forties. Yeah. I really like that guy's two pack. Looks good. As an adult, Mike moves out to Southern California, where he worked as a limousine driver for a number of years. 
that may have been his profession, but on the side, the daredevil lifestyle was still very much where his heart laid. He was like a classic adrenaline junkie. At first, how it manifested was that he got really into dirt bike racing. And apparently he was really good at it. Like, he, he won all sorts of races and contests. Like, people around him said, like, yeah, he'd win all these contests and, like, they'd give him a trophy and he'd just throw it straight in the trash. He just he just wanted loved the thrill and the prize money and getting chicks. That's all he wanted yeah, I mean, as, as, what are we what are we doing it for, honestly? Yeah, honestly, if you told me that every dirt bike racer was doing that, I'd believe you. That sounds like dirt bike race like mentality. There, it's like do it for the chicks and enough money to buy more chicks later. Like speaking mm -hmm. of speaking of ugh, dirt bike groupies, <laughs> God, can you? Oh. That's not a high caliber of lady, I don't think. A lot of a lot of caked in dirt there. Yeah. Um, it was inevitable that this would become more grandiose over time. His absolute dream was to recreate Evil Knievel's Snake River Canyon jump. Thankfully, he understood his limitations on that one, and he never tried it. But, yeah, that's just as well, because the stuff that he did come up with was way more unique. His first moment in the spotlight came in 2002, where he actually found a way to merge his personal and professional life. By setting the Guinness World Record for longest jump by a limousine. <clears throat> I was wondering when he was going to take that off a ramp. <laughs> Mike jumped a classic Lincoln Town Car stretch limo a stunning distance of 103 feet. Holy fuck. <clears throat> yeah, that's a long way to jump a limo, which I can only assume are not meant to be aerodynamic. Yeah, I, I those are not meant to go airborne. Unless it's like Elon Musk's limo. Yeah. In which case it still doesn't go airborne yeah. even though it's supposed to. And it catches so. on fire it, at the end and it, runs over even, a baby. Even a regular Even like a like a regular like Lincoln Continental. If that goes thirty yards on flat ground, it's probably rattling on its own. Like that thing in the air for that long? Jesus Christ. Here's a joke for all our Green County listeners. Imagine taking one of those things down Seven Hills Road. Holy fuck. Yeah. Oh, that, that low, low percentage joke. Yeah. <laughs> if you know, you know. So stunts, hope it's got extra shocks in there. Stunts were one of Mike's big personal interests, but not the only one. See, Mad Mike Hughes was also highly interested in the world of conspiracy theories. In particular, Mike was like the type of old school conspiracy theorist that you don't see as much of these days. See, nowadays, Nowadays, conspiracy theorists tend to be all specialized. Like, they pick one theory or one field of theories and obsess over that. Like, you're a UFO guy, you're a cryptid guy, you're a chemtrail guy, etc., etc., etc. Mike took more of uh, the, let's just say, Dale Gribble approach, where he just believed in all of them simultaneously. The classic question-everything guy, you know? Oh. Uh. So, it has long been my belief that there has to be some correlation between conspiracy guys and people who have likely sustained brain injuries. Um, I, I wonder what the connection is there. I, I just, I wonder. Like, this shotgun approach, like, it is, I will admit, it is more intellectually dishonest. Because, like, the odds that all of it's true is probably low. But it's a lot more fun, you know? Yeah. Like, like they're a more fun type of kook to be around. Yeah. Mike had a lot of takes about the moon landing and about 9-11, but the one that really came to define him was his belief that the Earth is flat. 
That's right. We're 62 episodes in, and finally we have our first Flat Earth guy. We've mentioned Kyrie Irving several times. So <laughs> Amazing that it's taken us this long. We got two Bigfoot guys before one Flat Earth guy. That's on us, ultimately. We've let you all down. It's hard to know where this all began, but during the late 2000s and into the 2010s, he fell into a habit that a lot of conspiracy theorists did at that time, watching hours and hours of videos on YouTube. And all it did was further radicalize his beliefs, especially about the Flat Earth. So Mike has now fully dived headfirst into both the worlds of Daredevil stunts and Flat Earth theories. Here, at this intersection, is where Mike's new ambition arises. Mad Mike Hughes wants to build a homemade, ro homemade rocket and launch himself into space. God damn it. Well, I mean, on one hand, if it works, this flat earther is not on Earth anymore. So I don't know if that's a net negative, really. I mean, we basically just sent an idiot into space. How bad is that really for the rest of us? Yeah, this guy deserved it way more than Laika the dog did. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah, R.I.P. Or even Barney Gumble. <laughs> In 2008, Mike got to work building his rocket, and not long after, our sub if guy. You know what I mean? Yeah, our sub guy of the story, Waldo Stakes, gets a call. Oh, that's a great name. Please tell me. Wait, 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 wait. <clears throat> Say his last name again. Waldo Stakes. How's like, that spelled? Like Stokes, except it's an A. Not like multiple, not like a multiple God. of a stick. Yeah. Damn it, I was hoping <laughs> so much. Waldo Stakes. Like, if your last name is Stakes <laughs> and, like, you're not a butcher. <laughs> Waldo Stakes is the most made-up sounding name I've ever heard of. It sounds like somebody doing yeah. a really bad Kaiser Jose the, at, like, a hotel check-in or something. The, Waldo Stakes sounds like the, like, $2 buy-in local horse derby track, like, race like we're here at the waldo stakes it is a suspiciously ideal name yes i couldn't find anything saying that's not his real name but like he he's like well i mean he was he was a guy in the daredevil like stuntman community which yeah. stakes is spelled that way is a good name for so yeah, you almost do wonder that's the name he gives like the government you're not getting his real name for free no waldo was a rather well-known figure in the stuntman community not only for performing his own stunts, but for his work designing stunts and vehicles for them. Previously, he'd built functioning rocket power cars, and he'd built boats, uh, boats that broke speed records. So he's a guy who actually does know his shit. Yeah. Who is, um, you know, useful per type of person to Mad Mike Hughes. <laughs> yeah, uh, someone who actually knows what he's doing is helpful right, for one of these right. people. Waldo, uh, he says that he gets calls all the time from people looking for help or at least consultation on building rocket power vehicles. But Mad Mike actually didn't call Waldo directly. A friend of his calls Waldo who's like, I know this total wacko who's building a spaceship in his yard. You should reach out. It sounds pretty interesting. Hey, this guy's going to blow himself we up. Let's... Moron in orbit. <laughs> yeah. So Waldo calls Mike. Mike invites Waldo over to come take a look at it. He comes over, he checks it out, and he's like, okay, so this thing would definitely kill you if you tried to use it, but I am impressed that you got as far as you did, so let me just help you out. It's just like a hundred firecrackers taped <laughs> to like a, like a Pinewood Derby car. <laughs> From there, Mike and Waldo become best friends. Got a lawn chair taped to it. 
Uh, Mike moves to a double wide on Waldo's ranch. And I think ranch is like kind of a loose term here. As best I could tell from the description that I read, um, a big chunk of the land was just, it was just like a big chunk of land out in the desert with a bunch of broken down cars on it and some trailers that Waldo turned into makeshift museums. In the 70s, that's what a ranch was. So, I will admit, there's an endearing quality to these two guys, Waldo especially. Like, they're just two relentlessly optimistic guys who love the stunt world, just hanging out in the desert trying to build a functioning rocket. Like, there is a buddy movie kind of dynamic to this whole thing. They're, yeah, that's, they're, that's the new Bill and Ted, isn't it? Yeah. They're just two passionate dudes. They're hot, they're sweaty, they're pounding rockets all day, you know? They go back, they sleep in the trailer, they come out the next day, they're pounding rockets again, man. It's just two bros. Now, I saw that. That had uh, Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal, <laughs> right? That is an aspect of this that I hadn't considered. <laughs> I don't like, know this if is, that was... This gives Probably me the idea. it's not there at all. <laughs> yeah. It, it, like, it's just vaguely enough where it's like the, like the 1920s, and the two women were best friends and lived together in their platonic friendship of two women friends. It's like, no, nah, they were gay. It's cool. We can say that. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, you can say lesbian. It's fine. <laughs> Um, at this point, I'll go ahead and, and acknowledge my source for a lot of this. Um, an article from The Pulse, which is a health and science um, site and podcast, which is an offshoot of a website called Y.org, which is an offshoot of PBS and NPR, written by Avishay Artsy, which is very complicated, but it's a good article. Um, okay. Finally, in 2014... Mad Mike Hughes attempted his first rocket launch. On January 30th in Winkleman, Arizona, which I guess is a real place, um, Mike hopped in his entirely homemade steam-powered rocket, and he took flight. The rocket reached a height of 1,374 feet and was in the air for a little over a minute. Now, I know you're all asking the same question. And yes, Mike did survive the flight. I'll do the Muppet Christmas Carol thing. And Mad Mike Hughes, who did not die. It's not the flight I was worried about. It's the landing that really gives me more yeah. pause. Because yeah. I don't know if this thing was built to kind of, yeah. you know, to, to cushion as it as it goes down, as some yeah. modern rockets are. It's, it's like in, like, race car driving. It's not the speed that kills you. It's the stopping. Yeah. I was going to say, it's not the fall, it's the yeah. sudden stop at the <laughs> yeah. end. Well, I'll tell you exactly how the landing went. Uh, he did survive the landing, but it kind of did fuck him up pretty good. Uh, his, injuries, his, his injuries left him using a walker for several weeks. Oh, no. He just rocketed into the earth. Yeah. yeah. That's a big thing to hit. You ever hit a deer? This is, like, way worse than that. This the is space a deer. Most people would chalk this up as a dub, all things considered. Dust off their hands and move on. But Mike and Waldo are daredevils, after all. And they instantly get to work building a second rocket that could go even higher and faster. Now this time they ran into... As soon as Mike's pelvis has been reassembled. <laughs> this time they run into a couple more basic problems. One was money. They didn't have a lot of spare cash lying around after building the first rocket, so they had to reach out for help. They launch a crowdfunding campaign that nets them a whopping $310. People were not interested in in, in funding this project. Um, was, something was, tells me that anybody that hung out with Mike frequently <laughs> would be like, here. <laughs> here you go. I'm, Take honestly, all my money. I want I'm, this to work. 
I'm honestly surprised because this seems like the kind of like viral shit that like Red Bull sponsors was like, hey, we sent a dumbass to space. <laughs> so that's a bit of a letdown. But then Mike has an idea. He goes public with his flat earth beliefs and reaches out to the flat earth community for help, stating that the end goal of these projects was to eventually fly high enough to prove that the earth is in fact a flat disk. So. Here we see what is a commonly debated aspect of Mike's legacy. By most accounts, his flat earth beliefs were totally genuine. But a lot of people around him say that he kind of played it up and inserted that issue into his stunts just to draw, uh, draw, drum up money and attention. Um, he also made some comments to that effect himself. Now, for what it's worth, uh, Justin Chapman was a journalist who spent a lot of time with Mike for a story he came away with the impression that Mike's ultimate goal was fame. But he added that Mike's big project that he had planned eventually was what he called a raccoon, which sounds like a Pokemon, but yeah, like you can picture it. Everybody, everybody out there, picture what yeah. the raccoon Pokemon looks like. I th we're all picturing the yeah. same thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. for, yeah. For people who it's are Pokemon me. nerds, it's a, it's a Zigzagoon, but it's a rock type. Yeah. A Zigzagoon yeah. mixed with a Geodude, essentially. So, what I'm imagining is just this is a giant rocket that is shaped to look like a raccoon for some reason. <laughs> the like a Doctor Evil invention yeah. where they make the make the spaceship look like something ridiculous. It's just a giant raccoon. the The truth is not much less silly than that. the 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 hypothetical raccoon would be a part rocket, part balloon that would launch Mike 62 miles up to the border between the Earth's atmosphere and outer space so that he could see the shape of the planet for himself once and for all. You two seem Again. puzzled. Okay. How are you going to land this? <laughs> like, well, it's a balloon. There is you, you no know, you way just come down. You don't die. <laughs> my, I'm sorry. It, there's no way. My, my question is not his survivability, although it probably should be the first question. My question is, what does this prove? Like, is he gonna stay up there for like a full day to watch the sun, like to watch like the like the planet rotate enough to like believe it? Like, what what is he gonna see up there? Well, you know, I'll, I'll say this, and just to set all your expectations correctly, we never find out because the raccoon <laughs> never comes to exist. Probably because the idea is fucking impossible. My my guess <laughs> is, like the competent guy involved in this, Waldo Stakes, probably didn't even entertain this 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 notion. Um. So again, who knows how much of that idea had to sincerely do with flat earth beliefs versus fame and attention. But I do love the idea of like doing a bunch of like small scale rocket launches and pretending that it's to prove the real shape of the earth just to, to get enough money and attention so you can do a larger scale rocket launch so that you can actually go up and see the shape of the earth. Like I could never think of a plan like that. I'll give him credit wow. for that. Yeah. Oh, that, that was one of his big ambitious plans. The other one was to run for governor of California eventually. So, as one does. That seems attainable. I mean, yeah. Crazier people have done it. Yes. Yeah. Hey, fucking Gallagher ran like five <laughs> times in a row. He didn't, didn't ever win, but... This is, a, this is a pre the precise type of guy who runs for governor. Maybe mayor, but I think governor is more... He's yeah. a little too ambitious for mayor. In any event, Mike's plan worked. And after catching the Flat Earth community's attention, his fundraising campaign reached its goal of uh, 
which is I will also say cheaper than I would expect <laughs> to build a, a yeah. functioning rocket. Yeah. You know, that's concerning. Well, with money out of the way, Mike encountered his next logistical hurdle: local bureaucracy, in particular the Bureau of Land Management, who are not too keen on some random kook launching launching himself up in a rocket on public land. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, like, liability shit you gotta get out of the way. Yeah. And also just, you know, w when this thing inevitably hits the Earth at, like, 250 miles an hour, there's gonna be a lot of cleanup. Well, also, Look, like, is... like you, 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 all, you almost don't even want to even, like, tacitly endorse something like this, you know? You yeah. gotta make a stand somewhere if you're the Bureau of Land Management. Yeah. This is just the, the lamestream media pulling out red tape bureaucracy, getting in the way of real fucking science. These bastards are keeping the man down. He's just trying to see some real fucking shit. Now you're thinking like Mad Mike Hughes. Now, I'm imagining like that. <clears throat> this has been a bit in like a million dumb comedies, but <laughs> the guy's just got his red rubber stamps looking at applications. Approved, 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 dipshit, <laughs> approved, approved. <laughs> It's got a big rubber stamp that says dumbass on it. Really glad I went to uh, to Hot Topic to get this dumbass stamp. I thought I'd never get to use it. So launch was pushed back because Mike had so much trouble getting the necessary permits. But finally, Mike just says, fuck this. He relocates his launch pad four miles so that he could attempt to launch both from and land on private property to try and skirt the rules. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> don't see any possible flaws in that logic um i mean i'm he is really banking a lot on his ability to get that rocket to come down where he wants it to <laughs> well and, and like a plan like this you wouldn't think that you want to be adding a bunch of unnecessary complications to it yeah. like it seems like this one you kind of want to just be clean and simple you know yeah Honestly, he feels like the kind of guy who's like, all right, I do it at the four corners, right? I launch it in the middle. I'm not in any legal jurisdiction. Totally legit, dude. Yeah. They, uh, Mike finally attempts the launch of his second rocket in February 2018, but there was a technical issue and it had to be aborted last second. They try again in March. This time, the rocket launches... Mike reaches a speed of 350 miles per hour and a height of 1,875 feet. It launched at a sharp angle to keep it from falling on public land. It comes back down, and it lands safely on the private land with Mike completely uninjured. Wow. Which, like, Mike's a, a, a total goof, but I have to admit, this was pretty boss that he managed to pull this off. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But again, these are daredevils. They aren't going to stop here. They're going to keep pushing their limits. Oh. They're not going to do it till something kills them. Yeah. <laughs> he, the entire time he's in there, he's like, yeah, fucking awesome. And on the way down, he's like, fuck, I forgot to look out the window. Just to clarify how <laughs> ambitious this was, like this second launch went like 500 feet higher than the other one, like a little short of 2,000 feet. His end goal is he wants to get 64 miles up there. So, yeah, in their minds, they got a ways to go. Hike. So, Mike and Waldo get to work building the next rocket. You know, again, this was not meant to be the be-all, end-all. This was not the fabled raccoon, just a better rocket that could take him farther and faster. 
<clears throat> now this time, after the success of the first couple launches, Mike has attracted a lot more attention. I mean, here's a guy. He said it! Yeah! 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 <laughs> yeah! Alright, show's over. So, he, like, here's a guy who's successfully built functioning manned rockets. Oh, and he also believes a bunch of goofy shit. Like, the media is destined to lap this guy up, you know? Of course, yeah. The Science Channel actually greenlights a pilot for a show about people who build their own aircraft. Um, homemade astronauts is what it was called. Ah. Uh. They send out a crew to document Mike and Waldo's efforts and to cover the launch. They run into more technical issues with this one. Uh, the first two attempted launches in August 2019 have to be postponed indefinitely because they had a lot of stuff they needed to fix, clearly. So Mike and Waldo, they go back to the drawing board. They fix whatever mechanical issues and they reset the launch for February 22nd, 2020. There's still a couple problems. One is that Mike wanted to prop a metal ladder up to the, the launch platform to make it easier for him to climb up into the rocket. Okay. Fair enough. Waldo, being the expert in the room, he advised that this was not a good idea. Uh, it could screw up the launch, but Mike insisted. Why? I have no clue. <laughs> I Just truly... Prop up a regular fucking ladder yeah. and then take it away before you take off. That is all you have to do. It seems like, and I, I'm afraid of the words I'm about to say, a weird hill to die on. Yeah. Waldo had also advised that they design the parachute pods to deploy automatically in case of any problems. Mike refused, saying, and I quote, I'm a daredevil. If I can't pull the parachutes myself, I deserve what I get. Oh, oh no, Famous buddy. Famous fucking words, buddy. That is... <laughs> At that point, you're just tempting fate. You're like, look, I'm going to die a man. That is Looks like around ominously yes, before I do yes this. You are. <laughs> that is like saying that things can't get any worse. Yeah. Like, it, I'm not I'm not a superstitious person. That won't guarantee that things will get worse, but it will make you feel a lot worse when they do. Oh, yeah. So February 22nd rolls around. Everyone congregates at the launch pad in the Mojave Desert. The crew of the Science Channel show Homemade Astronauts is on hand. Mike climbs the ladder and enters the rocket. It takes off, but in the process, the ladder on the platform snags the parachute pods and tears them. The rocket goes up, way, way up high. It arcs back down and begins its rather rapid descent. Oh boy. The onlookers had a very similar like takeaway... The onlookers had a very similar takeaway to the immortal words of Les Nesman on WKRP. I don't see any parachutes. Oh, no. Oh, no. Indeed, the parachute pods did not deploy. And Mike's rocket nosedived directly onto the ground at a speed of nearly 500 miles per hour. In that moment... The turkeys were hitting the ground like sacks of wet cement. In that moment... Despite all of the crazy stunts Mike had pulled off in his life, the reality became apparent, which is that Mike is, ultimately, just a goofball in a homemade yeah. rocket with all the same limitations that everybody else has. And Mad Mike Hughes died instantly on impact, learning that, of course. Learning that while the Earth may be flat, or it may be round, it is very hard. This is what we at Here's a Guy call a Reichelt moment. <laughs> yeah. 
There were a lot of similarities to Franz Reichheld, but I didn't want to say that up top. Yeah. <laughs> the difference is Mad Mike did some stuff that worked. Yeah, he us. actually he actually succeeded a couple times. He hired yeah, people Fra- that were Franz... So I guess just got real cocky after he thought he had a good design and then offed himself in front of a bunch of people. <laughs> actually, I had a big question planned, but I may I may come back to that thought for a second unprecedented second big question. Um, so Mike's admirers and friends in the Daredevil and Flat Earth communities were crushed and uh-huh. uh, and homemade astronauts did not get picked up for a second season. I was going to ask the future of that show that filmed a death. (laughs) I I don't know if it aired. That's the one thing I don't know. I know there is a Twitter video that's still out there of this happening because I watched it. (laughs) It's like the Owen Hart King of the Ring. The tape exists, but you'll never fucking see it. Right. No. Another tragic aspect of this. Had Mike just survived for another month? This was February 2020. Had Mike just survived for another month, he could have lived to see an era where everyone became like 50% more insane, and he could have really flourished. My oh. my speculation, I think he would have become an ivermectin guy. Oh, yeah, I can sure. see that for Mike. Absolutely, he's got some weird views on COVID, yeah. And then, who knows, maybe his candidacy for governor of California could have had some <laughs> teeth. The guy I feel most for in all this is Mike's friend, Waldo Stakes who I'm sure was wrecked with guilt, even though his advice would have prevented this all if Mike had just listened to him. And like I said, I do find Waldo to be weirdly endearing, but I also found some of his comments kind of questionable. His reflection on Mad Mike was this. Quote, I want you to realize what he was saying. You can do anything. The only person that stops you is you. So get out there and live life. He, He lived life, man. He lived it to the fullest. He really did. So, first of all, I don't know if the the best takeaway from this is really that you can do anything. I mean, Mad Mike did die, after all. You can't do this, as it turns out. He didn't do what he wanted to do. If anything, it might be the opposite. This specific thing, you cannot do. I'll give give him. You can do anything, but anything has consequences. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Now, the next sentence, which is that the only person that stops you is you, that one might be a little more apropos, considering that Mad Mike's weird insistence on the metal ladder is what ultimately killed him. But that that final part, which is um, Waldo talking about Mike living life to the fullest, I think that poses an interesting philosophical quandary. So I'm going to put it to you two. My big question in your estimation, did Mad Mike Hughes live life to the fullest? Well, I believe living life to the fullest takes a bit longer than that. So I, I don't know if I'm going to say he actually lived life to the fullest having died so young. But in Well, terms I, I will of say he was, he was I mean, 64. Genuinely... So he wasn't super young. He was 64 years old. Yeah, but, I guess. but I mean, that you know, that's still younger still, than the average. I mean, yeah, and I, I guess he really did do what he wanted to do for most of his life. I mean, he was getting, he had a goal that he never quite achieved, but he seemed very happy in pursuing it. Um, yeah, I guess you could give him a, a live life to the fullest there. Uh, I'm absolutely giving him live life to the fullest. Uh, in, his, in his early days, he's fucking jumping limos like 30 yards. He's He's out here living out his desert dream, building fucking rockets with his bro dude, maybe boyfriend. I don't know. I wasn't there. But, like, it seems like he's 
He's just out there, like, working hard, pounding dudes, man. That's life to the fullest. Very caught up on one one aspect of all this. I, I want it for him. I, it's, I it's want really him to find love. How much you're fixating on this? I he didn't have he didn't have a significant other. I want him to find love. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, he's he's a rocket guy. Rocket guy ain't got no time for for that kind of thing. Yeah, for a relationship. A, a, a rocket man is confined to a a a, a very solo lifestyle. The, but you know the, what? It's just how they're built. The pod's built for one man. I think that that yeah, living life to the fullest kind of life kind of is what you make of it. It's like you could be real literalist about it and say like, well, factually, he didn't live his life to the fullest because he probably could have gone on to live like, you know, a couple more decades if not for his own decisions. But when if this is what he found fulfilling, is doing this kind of thing, I, I'm sure if you're the type of person who does this kind of thing you have a reckoning at a certain point like that this is the sort of thing that could happen. So, yeah, I'll, I'll be willing to give him credit. I, I think he he lived a very fulfilling life. It certainly seemed that way. Um, so my second big question, inspired by, by comments a few minutes ago, um, compare and contrast this with Franz Reichelt. Franz Reichelt died the first time he attempted to do any stunt whatsoever. And it was an incredibly poorly thought out stunt at that. Mad Mike, like he he actually, you know, sought expert advice. He succeeded doing something twice, although getting getting injured one time, but then just kept going until he did inevitably die doing it. Who is dumber between the two of them? Philosophically, Franz Reichelt or Mad Mike Hughes? Franz Reichelt dying the first time or, or Mad Mike Hughes succeeding and then dying because he kept trying well see the thing is for franz reichelt there was had he done what he wanted to do there was definitely a way out of that scenario that didn't end with him dying for mike i just don't really see it i i think he was <laughs> destined to, to meet this end at some point and he just kept doing it Maybe that makes him dumb. Maybe that yeah. just makes him unconcerned with his own uh, personal well-being. But I, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say Mike wins the the prize for dumbest here. I I'm I'm kind of similar of two minds. Do you take the person who was dumb because they just did it and died, or do you take the person who was dumb enough to continue doing it and just like chancing like your likelihood of living? I think I still think Franz was dumber though, just because of the grand like spectacle of his death. Like that's got a factor in just like how really emboldened and how emboldened <laughs> you were by your own stupidity to then die like that. Well, I'll, I'll give him this. Like, there is a different, a key difference in their ambitions, which is Mad Mike's ambition was to go as high up in the air as possible. Franz Reichelt wanted to jump off of the Eiffel Tower, like. Like, he specifically wanted to go downwards, you know? <laughs> Matt yeah. Mike at least wanted to go up a bit first. <laughs> so, um, I think there's definitely a case to be made that Franz was dumber. But at the end of the day, I mean, the fact that... And, you know, maybe this is, is unfair as to the question, but... Um, I mean, the fact that, that Mad Mike could have probably succeeded a third time had it not been for his insistence on just one weirdly insignificant detail... I think that probably pushes him over the edge. Also, and that he believed the Earth was flat. That has, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and also, that. yeah. I thought that kind of went without saying. Right. Whereas Franz Reichelt just thought the world was soft. Yeah. 
All right, well, that's our uh, our first guy of the episode, and uh, we now turn to Jack John. Jack John, who's your guy this week? My guy this week is David Janowski. Uh, I'll I'll throw a quick little uh, add in. It's his first name. David is spelled D A W I D, hmm. uh, but by all accounts, it's stylized as David, probably just for ease of life. Yeah, I've heard of that spelling in like Eastern Europe, and his name's Janowski. So I'm guessing there's some Polish or Czech in there. Yeah, um, I've heard. I think the Israelis do that too sometimes. Yeah. Well, David was born. David was born in June of 1868. In Volkoveski, a small Polish town, yeah, there you uh, go. which was in at the time in the, the Russian Empire uh, or modern day Belarus. I see. Yeah, if your last name ends with ski, yeah, that's that's usually Polish. Yeah. From here, his family would move to Warsaw around the early 1880s, uh, where David would find his first lifelong hobby, chess. Uh, yes, we have another chess guy this week on Here's a Guy. The chess guys kind of all proved to be big fucking weirdos, so excited to hear where this goes. I would be It's su- almost like. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be surprised if he's as weird as Sam Sloan, but, I mean, that's the highest possible yeah. bar. He he has some quirks. I won't say he gets that far, but he's got some interesting things that I think makes him worthy of here's a guy. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting ways this could go. Uh, David gravitated to chess instantly as a kid. He played it so much so that he he would even end up joining his school's chess club with his brother. From a young age, David seemed to be a natural uh, at the chessboard. He understood chess uh, at an advanced level, and it showed. But before I get any further into this, I do want to get one thing out of the way. While David understood chess at an almost scientific level, I do not. I know how chess works, and I know how to play like a normal game of chess uh, amongst a friend, uh, but when it comes to chess scoring and advanced moves, I have no idea what the fuck's going on. That puts you one up on me, because yeah. I this is a shameful secret, but I do not know how to play chess. Yeah, I, I, I was going to mention, um, when you mentioned like he and his brother joined uh, the chess club, uh, in case any of you are wondering, Cody and I did not join the chess club in high school, mainly because there was no chess club at our high school. Um, because we're we're poor and we didn't have anything. Mainly why, but, <laughs> but I mean, that's certainly yeah. One we reason. we probably wouldn't have anyway. Our big nerdy thing was Scholastic Bowl, which the, you and I both did. So um, yeah, we were we were ringers. Yeah, so everyone's like, who's this fucking doofus? I try to get two of my like, doofus friends guy, to, but just existing yeah. around the school, he is not nearly smart enough to be doing this. I try to get two of my doofus friends to join, um, just because one of them was really good at math and the other was just really good at like historical trivia. Um, and also just so I'd have someone to hang out with, but, uh, <laughs> then they both bailed on the whole thing last minute and, uh, uh fucked me in the process. But yeah. anyway, yeah. So for simplicity's sake, when those things come up, scoring and advanced chess moves, uh, I'm going to do my best using the vocabulary provided, uh, for my lovely chess nerd source. Uh, but much like real life, Jack John going through high level poli sci classes, I'm going to pretend like I know what I'm saying, but I have no fucking clue. Yeah. Look, we got through it. Yeah, I, I've thought what about it before, like, uh, um, yeah, I guess we is a, as a, not, maybe not the <laughs> optimal term to use there, but, um, yeah, I, I, I've thought about like teaching myself like how to play chess and like game theory and that kind of stuff. But my big problem is that like, I love strategy games, but I, I spend all day doing smart people stuff at work. And when I get home and on the weekends, I want to kind of be like a dumb guy for a little while. 
part of why I do this show. So (laughs) I don't know if I do this show and watch football and drink beer. Yeah. I don't know if I really have the, I really don't know if I have the energy for it, but maybe someday. Uh, Jokes aside, I did find one incredible piece uh, for this very niche topic. So shout out to the website chess base, which had a lovely write up uh, on our guide, David, uh, as well as one other source that kind of like, eulogized him a little bit, but uh, Chessbase was my main source for this. I see. Now, what really separated David as a player early on, and against uh, uh, this against like the last eight, or late 1800s and early 1900s, was his play style. While at this time, as far as I could tell, most of the higher-end chess players were more refined in what you might call like a classical style of very, you know, uh, waiting for your opportunity and kind of like very balanced play, David was seen as an aggressive player someone who used quick movement and brutal offensive attacks. He was he most known... <laughs> he beat the shit out of a dude. I think that's technically a win. He was For most known... old ancient chess rule is that if you beat your opponent to death during yeah. the match, if, that's if, a win. If you knock the king over, it's a win. If you knock over the player, it's a super win. <laughs> Uh, He was most notable for using his bishops incredibly tactfully. Uh, For those who might not be as familiar with chess, those are the pointy diagonal moving guys. One of his peers even mentioned that during David's career that, quote, when in form, he was one of the most feared opponents who can exist. Like, he was ruthless when it came to, like, offensive strategy. he kicked that guy in the nuts. (laughs) (laughs) I'd be afraid of him, too. Yeah, he sat there Sounds for like thirty. Sat there for thirty minutes and thought about his next move, and then he just pulled out a gun and shot the guy. He was truly a master at putting you on the back foot early and making you pay for it. Uh, that said, David had some glaring issues elsewhere in his game. First, while being offensively aggressive uh, could be a strong way to start a game, that also leaves openings, either in a weaker defense or with uh, more room for a mental lapse. David was often like said, yes, great yeah, offense, like, no defense, and his brain was Swiss cheese. He, he had a killer crossover, but he was poor in rotation or transition. <laughs> um, so with that, uh, secondly, it was said that David had uh, an incredible opening and mid game, but his end game was more chicken shit than chicken salad. Uh, chess historians often say that the weakest part of David's game was the end game. And there's even a quote from David himself saying, quote, I detest the endgame. So here's just kind of a a general. Whatever you're doing, if there is a part of it called the endgame, that should not be the chink in your armor. Um, (laughs) That should be something that you have a lot of confidence in. Yeah, um. It's literally, like, the most crucial part of the game is finishing. And David's just like, nah, fuck that. I just want to get this shit over with. Uh, Which leads into my third point about David. He's stubborn as shit. Uh, While he played aggressively and strategically in openings in mid-game, it seemed like David had a one-track mind when it came to his game plan. David would be so set on one idea going into a match that he would hopefully continue the plan, even if it was clear to everyone watching and playing that the plan had failed. In the book Marshall's Best Games of Chess, there's a line that reads, he could follow the wrong path with greater determination than any man I have ever met. 
Same. He's so damn stubborn that he won't deviate from his plan when it fails. Considering some of the other guys we've talked about on this show, that's pretty high praise. Yeah. No. He's, a, he's Trevor Lawrence. He's throwing his third interception in the first quarter. He's just not giving up <laughs> to do that. Well, you know, and Trevor Lawrence was justified in, in his decision, you know. Yeah. When he, he adjusted. Yeah. yeah. When he adjusted his game plan in the second half. Uh, David doesn't do that. Did David also have a, a, a beautiful head of hair? You know what? He had a hell of a mustache. Oh, okay. And the one picture I was able to see from him, he had a hell of a mustache. As far as chess guys go, that's pretty hair. good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the quirks of David's playstyle and personality don't stop here, though. While David won a great deal of matches, naturally he would have to lose some as well. Turns out, chess is a very complex game, and there are nuances to your wins and losses, and there's a lot that goes into what may have happened. There wasn't much I could find on how David took his wins, whether he did so quietly and graciously, or respectively, like you would imagine a 1900s chess player would behave. But we do have a record on how he handled his losses. To cope with the checkmates, David would find every excuse possible for his subpar performance. The room was too hot, or the room was too cold, or the windows were open in the next room over, and there was a draft, or the window wasn't open quite enough. Um, this started to annoy the absolute shit out of everyone David played against, because he was always making excuses. I bet. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds like it would be irritating. So there's a point where in a David match, he's playing a clearly losing position, dodging and prolonging an endgame that's surely a failure, and at the end he'll quip, oh, I only lost because a dog was barking ten minutes ago. Like, the worst kind of loser. <laughs> Add one last little quirk about our guy David. He also had one other hobby. This hobby, however, wasn't the best one to have, in my opinion. Oh, boy. As, da as David was also a severe gambling addict. <laughs> Yeah, that's a problem. Aww. And it's, uh, this time I should probably, I, I unfortunately uh, will have to um, uh, mention our new DraftKings sponsorship <laughs> coming through. Use the promo code. Here's a guy. And you just lose for your money first money. for your first whatever the fuck they do over there. You guys need to bring Daryl on for him for this. <laughs> like I once had suggested to Daryl that uh, the government may be spying on him, and his response was something like, "Like what are they going to see? Busted ass parlays." Uh, God bless that man. Now, now, gambling is fine, but if you're someone who gambles actively or as a hobby, you should have a level of self-moderation and discipline. Yeah. David Janowski seemingly has none of that. David would take all of his chess winnings to the casino and would gamble everything he had until it ran zero. Even after winning at the casino and making it into the green, he would continue to bet until everything was gone, seemingly never knowing when to stop. Then he would go home, get ready for another chess tournament, play well enough to cash out, and then head back to the casinos. Okay. What was David's game of choice? In my opinion, the absolute worst game, the roulette wheel. Yeah, that's a bad one. Yeah, a game that's not a game. It's just somebody spinning a ball for you, and then you lost your money. You want to do it again? Mm -hmm. To this point, I've ragged on David, and probably a bit too harshly. Uh, the truth is, he was a hell of a chess player. Uh, his tactics were ahead of their time, and the aggressive nature was able to best much of his older peers, especially early on in his career. 
David won a laundry list of titles and tournaments. Uh, the chess championship of Paris was one of the notable ones he had first won. He had also participated in a Masters tournament and traveled all around Europe, uh, matching up against some of the continent's best and brightest in the game of chess. One such tournament was the National Tournament in London in 1899, where he would play second. David came out of the tournament feeling incredibly confident and made a challenge. The current chess world champion was a man by the name of Emmanuel Lasker. Lasker was a German mathematician who, during his playing career, was a world champion for 27 years straight. Holy moly. Not bad. Yeah. Considered one of the greatest champions of all time, from like my brief research into Lasker. Now, Lasker was up for the challenge. Uh, the two of them were at the same age. They'd been born in the same year and had been running in similar spaces, so they were familiar with each other. Uh, this wasn't just like a pot shot out of nothing. Like They were familiar. Uh, Lasker was even ready to put up money as an additional side pot, as well as the title of world <laughs> champion, asking that both men put up $10,000 in Swiss francs as prize money. It's, un, uh, it's unsure for certain, uh, but during the final stages of uh, this negotiation, um, they couldn't reach a full agreement and the match was off. My suspect is that uh, David just didn't have the money because he was gambling at all. Say, right, David yeah. Didn't have... <laughs> Didn't, didn't have 10 grand because yeah. he was blowing it all at the casino. Yeah. David would still continue to be active on the international chess circuit, playing in tournaments in uh, places like Moscow, Monte Carlo, and Hanover. Uh, all these tournaments finishing somewhere in the top five and even winning a couple of them, uh, all while climbing the world's rankings. And for a brief period of time, he was seemingly at the same level of, as at the same level as Lasker. Uh, he didn't uh, usurp him, but he was definitely like right there at like number two. Fast forward to 1909, and the dream match against Lasker is back on the table. To make sure all the ends were covered, David even got in contact with a wealthy art dealer, someone who could sponsor him and make up for the needed prize pool money. A four-game set was agreed upon, and we finally have the matchup, Janowski versus Lasker. It was an intense series of matches, both men trading win for win before ultimately the series ended in a 2-2 tie. The men had a... They, they agreed on four matches for whatever reason. That seems really dumb. <laughs> Even number is never where you want to go if you're looking to establish a world title. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it was just like a you gotta beat me, you can't tie. Like, I, I don't know the exact reason why they played four matches. I don't know what the like the symbolism in that is, but they did four matches. The men had a rubber match later that uh, same year in the fall. Now, David had time to prepare. After seeing how Lasker had played and his approaches, he could formulate a game plan on how to approach this next one. Uh, but as we recall, uh, David is a fast and loose player and way too stubborn to change anything about his approach. And in the rematch, he gets his ass handed to him on a nice platter and loses 6-2. Again, I'm not sure what the exact scoring metric is, but it said that this match he lost 6-2. But still a good showing. Uh, losing to the world's top player isn't exactly a failure. Not to be deterred, David went back to the lab and began planning uh, for the ultimate rematch. 1910 rolls around, and we're getting a Super Bowl-level matchup here. This time, instead of four games, the men agreed to an astounding set. The first one to eight games wins, covering multiple cities. The first ten sets of this match will be in Berlin and the remaining in Paris. A true juggernaut in the chess world, and it's going to be the biggest event ever. 
the world champion defending his crown in two different cities. Okay. I said Lasker went seven and three in the first ten matches, uh, beating the absolute shit out of David. And both men agreed there, uh, there and then that traveling to Paris would be a waste. And they played the eleventh match immediately, uh, which Lasker would win. <laughs> That's that is a pretty womp womp yeah. kind of. A, 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 a thorough like shellacking. Tom Brady's ending his career this yeah. year. Like one, uh, one last big go of it. Builds it up, builds up the trauma just to get your ass fucking handed by yeah. Dak Prescott. Yeah. We're, we're getting the band back together, uh, but the band can't play instruments, actually. Uh, still, David pulled three wins against the uh, world's best chess player. Again, like, n- no small feat. Uh, Surely, though, uh, all this news would lead to David getting more recognition in the chess world and in the public's eye, and maybe a little money along the side for, for playing, while not great, well enough, uh, that he could, you know, get a little action his way. Uh, well, the pu- public didn't actually give much of a shit, and Lasker asked for the publishing rights to the games uh, in negotiation, so he didn't have a need to publish the scores or how the outcomes really went. Um, so... David did the best he could and just went to the casino and cried. Is what I was <laughs> yeah. able to find out. Well, the write-up said basically like, we've all we've all been there. Yeah, he couldn't do anything, so he went to the casino. Well, yeah, yeah. David would have one last big chess tournament in Europe. He was invited to the 19th Chess Congress of the German Federation in Mannheim in 1914. Hanging well, out with a bunch of German chess players. God damn, what a party that must have been. Well, the tournament was underway. It just so happened that a little something called World War One broke out. Uh, that whole thing. The event. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, he's in Germany in 1914. Uh, it just so also happened uh, to have uh, happen that this German event wasn't too keen on all of the non-Germans that were there especially the half-Polish and current French-residing David uh, Janowski. Well, yeah, the the Germans and the Polish have certainly had their issues over the years. David and the other players were detained for a brief period of time before being released back to Switzerland later that year. So at one point in time, this chess player is essentially a POW in the middle of World War I. Again, never say, how could it get any worse than this? Yeah, precisely. This is fucking why. It said fuck all this shit and moved his chess career to the U.S., at least during wartime, uh, it seemed, and maybe a little bit afterwards. David would have one last matchup against Lasker, this time in New York. The two were both competitors in the 1924 New York World Tournament. The tournament would, of course, be won by Lasker, uh, but how did David fare? Well, he got dead last and and blamed all of the losses in the tournament on the cold he was having at the time. So he's got the yips at this point. He's got the chess yips. Uh, this time, though, he may have been onto something, though, as, as sadly, uh, just three short years after that, David would die suffering from the final stages of tuberculosis. So, oh, yeah, everyone died of tuberculosis back then. What he thought was just a little cold was the early stages of tuberculosis. David Janowski would leave behind a legacy as a damn good chess player between two generations. Great enough to beat the shit out of the older men, but too stubborn to get over the skill increase of some of his peers and the younger players at the time, 
um, like the legendary Emmanuel Lasker. His aggressive play style even popularized the old Indian defense, a strategy which, as what I can tell, uh, uh, includes moving second as the black pieces, uh, leading with your knight, and uh, leading as an entryway for your bishop to make a full attacking force by the third turn. Something that he was popular uh, for using, and <laughs> it seemingly like... I've done that a million times. <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah. You, you, you can thank our boy David. Uh, but that was the life of almost chess legend uh, David Janowski. Uh, great chess player, worst gambler. Uh, which all leads me to my big question. Uh, David loved to gamble at the roulette table, uh, but as I already stated, I think that's the worst game at the casino. Uh, what do you think is the worst game at the casino? So the worst one I've ever seen was... So I went to the casino over by the slots, and there was this other slot machine they had that was different than the rest, and I, I guess this whole thing had... Uh, a soft drink sponsorship because the whole front of it was just a great big coca-cola logo and in fact all the buttons actually had had types of soda attached to them so i put my i put my dollar in, and it was only a dollar to play and i hit i hit the button and all i win is a goddamn coke i played this thing 12 times i walk away with a 12 pack of coke and and absolutely i'm getting something in my ear now never mind on to you Took like what two, three words into that for us to realize that was a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a. I was waiting to see how long it would take you to get it. Here's another uh, reference specifically for all our uh, Green County homies. It was a uh, Mean Gene soda machines. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's some lore no. we might have to drop at some point. Yeah, honestly, you didn't have to put money in those to get I don't the think soda out of them. Never heard about that before. I don't think I have. There's not that much to it. I mean, they were these soda machines that were in the middle of town that were owned by uh, a local slumlord who most people referred to as Mean Gene. And somebody, God even knows who, just just noticed how great of a name it was that they are Mean Gene soda machines. I know exactly <laughs> who it was, motherfucker. That was me. Oh, was that you? <laughs> I, I, a couple of, this was a little before my time, but yeah, a couple of your friends uh, kind of notoriously figured out how to break into mean jeans soda machines well here's how to break in he didn't lock them yeah <laughs> yeah breaking is kind of a misnomer open yeah. the vending yeah. machines and one time two of the two of the kids i went to high school with just opened it up and stole everything and i'm like <laughs> dude you've killed it for all of us yeah because before yeah. you could just reach in and get a soda when you wanted and who's gonna notice that yeah but you just ripped off everything in yeah there. you skim off the top you don't take the whole pot and i think that actually was in fact the last time that there was soda in mean gene <laughs> soda machines mean gene never got around to, to filling them out um we're buying a padlock <laughs> so my my answer i there's definitely a good argument to be made for you jack with the slots or with the roulette my my controversial take is like you know i'll play them um but I think objectively speaking, the the just slot machines are the worst. I think it's the most depressing experience. Yeah. Because there's no yeah there's no thought really to it. There's no skill involved, and that's why old people love it so much. Like yeah. our our grandmother was one of these ladies who like the old lady who would just sit at the slot machine for hours, hours, and it just I never win anything in there. 
It always just pisses me off by the end of yeah. it. So I think I think those are the worst. I understand that some people love them, but yeah. I would much rather go and like play a card game. Yeah. Honestly, the only time I ever have come out ahead at casinos was poker and blackjack. Those yeah. are the only yeah. two things I've ever come out ahead. I've I've been to a casino once. We went like for our friend's twenty first birthday after we were done bar hopping. So we get to the casino at like three AM. I think we left at five. And we played like blackjack and like poker and like all these like different things. And as we were leaving, we walked like through where the slots were. And at five AM there were like old ladies who had like three empty Coke cans in front of them and were just like mindlessly like hitting the bar. And I was like, This is the yep. saddest fucking shit ever. <laughs> Like it bummed me out. Like it ruined. Like it soured. Like like it, the last bit. It's of the real casino. Bummer. Yeah, yeah. We call that a Vegas nursing home. <laughs> I I had an experience at the casino. I think the last time I went to the boat pre-COVID, because you go since like maybe this has changed, but I know like for it, it took it's taken them a long time to like open back up the like all the poker tables and everything. So my friends and I went and we start playing poker, um, and. First of all, the, the first sign, the first bad sign was like, we start off and we're doing pretty well. And like, whoever works at the casino sent out the signal like, okay, the people at this table actually know what they're doing. Um, so they call in, I can't remember his name, but like, he's one of the dealers who works there, who they call in for like the table that like, they really need to fuck, you know? Um, they, they need to put up a pretty strong resistance to this table. And it's pretty early on. It's about like, I don't know, 15 minutes in and I'm up like 120 bucks at least. It might've even been more than that. And the, the most torturous aspect of this was that I know enough about betting and gambling that if I'm smart, I am just going to call it quits right here because they've called in the good dealer and the house always wins. And if I keep playing, I am going to lose every cent of this. But the problem was, like, it's very clear my friends want to have fun and keep playing for a while. And so either I'm just going to have to sit there or I'm going to be a good sport and play and I'm going to end up in the red. What wound up happening was the latter. So that's the most torturous aspect is going up early and knowing the smart thing to do is just quit. But, like, you don't want to be a spoil sport and just sit there for hours. So... Yeah. You, you know it's going bad when, like, the dealer comes in and immediately deals you pocket jacks. You're mm-hmm. like, okay, you just gave me a landmine. That's what you did. Yeah, fuck <laughs> off with this. I'm going to blow my entire stack on this. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, um, good topic, Jack John, um, and that's two down. So for our third topic, we turn to Cody. Cody, who's your guy this week? Oh, we got a heavy hitter this week. We are talking about the legendary, one one of the genuine legends in American legal history, the great Melvin Belli. A tremendous character. This guy has such a fantastic resume for being a guy, just even from the outside looking in without knowing too much about him. Because, I mean, he's a personal injury attorney who went completely Hollywood mm-hmm. and also had some weird connections to some extremely important moments in America's cultural history just kind of by chance. Yeah, I'll say in the legal world, as far as like trial attorneys go, in the criminal defense world, like considered the all time greatest criminal defense trial attorney was Clarence Darrow. Mm-hmm. In the civil world, the version of that is Melvin Belli. He was yeah. the star of that world. 
because it's not always and the boy, most. Did he like being the star? Yeah, it's not always the most glamorous or interesting area of civil law. In fact, it pretty much never is. But boy, Melvin, he he sure found a way to buck that trend. Mm-hmm. So Melvin was born in 1907 in Sonora, California. I did not know his middle name, and I'm going to ask you guys how you think you pronounce this, okay? Melvin Belli's middle name, M-O-U-R-O-N. Well, I sure hope it's not Moron. That's that's It's got to be, though. Moron what, what would be the only... Um, unless, it, like... Does it have, like, an it's, accent it's over Morin it? or something like that. Why would you do that? Accent. No wonder this kid... It was turned... actually, so it was actually his ancestral... Uh, his maternal grandmother's maiden name, I think. Is what yeah, she name. switched it because people kept calling her moron. That's one you change at fucking Ellis Island when you get here. Yeah. That, it, even so, if, even like the best pronunciation just sounds like, like a southern eight-year-old, like, you mow-round. Like, it's not, it's not good any way you spell it or pronounce it. Get a brain, morons. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, th- this guy, he's already entered this world named Moron. Way to give your kid a complex. No wonder he became a fucking lawyer. So, Melvin was born into a relatively well-off family. Uh, so much so that after graduating from, of course, Cal Berkeley in 1929... Oh, sure. Uh, he, he traveled yeah. the for world weirdos. for a while before... <laughs> he traveled the world for a while before returning to, of course, Cal Berkeley well, for yeah. law school. <laughs> Cody and I know one person IRL who went to Cal Berkeley... And he is himself a fascinating character. Our dad's friend, Steven. Really yeah. is. Um, so he graduated in 1933. His first job was an interesting one. He actually worked for the Works Progress Administration. This is something that we've talked about before mm-hmm. with the Depression era topics. Uh, he helped them out by posing as a homeless person riding the rails to help them understand the Depression's <laughs> effects on the homeless population. Which I'm guessing was mostly just, gee, there are a lot more of us than there used to be. <laughs> the WPA, like, it, it gets most remembered for, like, a lot of the projects involved involving building something. But, like, a lot of their arts Tennessee projects. Yeah. Stuff like that. But, like, the arts projects and, like, their cultural projects are so, so fascinating. Yeah. And it's, like, it, it sucks and that. And for more on that. <clears throat> well, or, sorry, go ahead. Well, it, it sucks that, like publicly funded programs like that are such a non-starter with people now, but I, I think it's so interesting and so cool. Um, now was this the, the, you know, the most useful example of it I've ever heard? Maybe yeah. not, but um, he's, he's just pretending no, to be a hobo was... on a train and he's just like, wow, someone should really do something about this. Huh? I mean, it's, it's a fact finding mission. It basically, yeah. they were, you know, because <laughs> The homeless people really, frankly, weren't that much affected because, you know, it was just see how the other happened. Right, exactly. They were were, were already there. Yeah. But, I mean, again, it it was up to the WPA to ascertain that that was the case and that, no, this is not somewhere we need to really be focusing on. Um, Soon after that, he began his career as a personal injury attorney. His first major victory came when he represented a cable car gripman who was injured on the job and suing his employers. Belli showcased his classic style of being loud and flashy and really pissing off his opponents by bringing a full-scale model of a cable car intersection, complete with the actual gearbox and chain used during the accident, to demonstrate his claim of what happened. 
the opposing council was furious about this and protested vigorously, but the judge allowed it. The judge was like, no, I, I, I kind of like trains. Let's see how this goes. Well, it worked. Belli won the case. Um, largely because he was able to demonstrate what... But, I mean, that was kind of Melvin's M.O., is he wanted to go big or go home. So, Belli used this style to become, eventually, the top personal injury lawyer in the country. Um, he n- earned the nickname the King of Torts. Yeah. <laughs> Which... He earned a very different nickname from his opponents, who called him Melvin Bellicose. Yeah, <laughs> which that's also pretty fits. good. I, I will say, lawyers tend to have a very dry sense of humor and be pretty insufferable generally. But we can come up with a good insult name for people. We're pretty good at yeah. it. So Belli argued multiple cases actually that set the foundation for a lot of what would become the first consumer rights legislation laws later on. One such case was the landmark Escola v. Coca-Cola Bottling Company uh, case in 1944. Alex, I'm, have you heard of that at all? Not familiar with that case, no. I don't know a ton of civil law history. I was going to say, other I than the absolute bare civil bones. law, you would have had to learn about this. Probably. So in this case, uh, Gladys Escola was a waitress at a restaurant had a Coca-Cola bottle spontaneously explode in her hand. Um, It was a defective bottle, and this is back when they actually used to fill the bottles at the establishment. You just got a bunch of empty bottles and then, like, a soda fountain. So it had been overfilled for especially a defective bottle. So this thing just blows up in her hand and seriously injures her, uh, drove bits of glass and bottle cap deep into her hand, uh, damaged some tendons... Uh, yeah, just really, really not good. It's like having a sweet, fizzy hand grenade go off in your hand, basically. Ooh. So, Belli argued that while the defendant did not necessarily produce the defective bottle, they were responsible for its sale and use in the restaurant, and therefore negligent. Belli wins the case, and California Supreme Court Justice Roger Trainer is actually the one that put this on the map, he issued an assenting opinion from a different court that instead of deciding the case on the grounds of was this negligent versus was it not, what we really need to do is just impose a strict liability rule for manufacturers of anything potentially dangerous, which is almost anything. This was a landmark decision and set up a lot of what we use uh, today in civil law. There is what's called implied warranty is basically the... um, the principle that it's the best way to explain that implied warranty basically just means by virtue of selling this to you, I am making the claim that this will not blow up as soon as you use it. And even if that is not a guarantee, I am making myself by selling, I am tacitly making that agreement with you. And that's something that became the case uh, or something that became the standard procedure later on. Belli's biggest moment, although this case made his reputation, his biggest moment would not come for another 20 years. In the meantime, Melvin Belli did not back off his ostentatious persona whatsoever. Here's my favorite Melvin Belli fact. After he won a case in court, he would raise the Jolly Roger over his office in San Francisco (laughs) 
and then fire a cannon that he had mounted to the roof to single the wind and the impending rager to come. Oh my <laughs> god, that is fantastic. That was another thing Belli did. Every time he won a court case, he threw a big-ass party. Well, in a case Not like that, like, like like winning right. a case means that you're about to get paid. So, yeah, that's yeah. appropriate. I, I love the Jolly Roger part. Yeah. <laughs> that's just... That is... That's so, so... That's petty in such a unique way. Yeah. Yeah. Not every case was just a solid win, though. Uh, in 1964, this is the case that made Melvin Belli a household name. He agreed to, pro bono, mind you, represent Jack Ruby after he assassinated Lee Harvey Oswald. Hmm. Now, Belli here pitched an insanity defense. He tried to go through Ruby's past and claim that he was a, you know, he had a history of mental illness, which if you know a little bit more about the story of Jack Ruby, not entirely out of the question that that might have been the case. Um, he was an odd guy. But Belli would never get to see this case through as he, along with a carousel of other lawyers, were eventually fired by Ruby. Yeah. That was another thing. Jack Ruby just kept firing and hiring different lawyers. Yeah. But this is what put Melvin Belli on the national map. Yeah, I don't remember what wound up happening with that, but my take on Jack Ruby was always like, I don't know that he met the standards of legally insane, but he was kind of your bog standard nut. He, he was more just a big pain in the ass than, than anything else. Yeah. So Ruby was convicted, but was scheduled... Uh, due to the efforts of Belli and a team of other uh, defense attorneys, he uh, was actually granted a new trial and was scheduled to begin. Unfortunately, uh, Ruby died before uh, the trial could start in 1966. So, uh, after this whole thing, Melvin Belli decides, I really don't like J. Edgar Hoover. Which, good for you. Yeah, shame. Same, yeah. Uh, so, he became a very outspoken critic of Hoover and the feds. <coughs> Hoover he the also Fed had a, a minor role. No, he also had a minor role to play in one of the landmark pieces of American history, the Altamont Free Concert. Oh fuck! <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't know he had any involvement in this. One of the the well, truly so Belli, bad ideas in American history. Yeah, yeah Belli, I think just did some background work around getting permits and getting this set up. He didn't organize the whole thing uh, and he didn't necessarily represent anybody there. He just, I think was hired by the organizers to, you know, get the permits and, and facilitate what needed to, to be done to make it happen. Now, for those of you unaware, the Altamont free concert was a, uh, supposed to be a California's answer to Woodstock um, set up largely by the Grateful Dead, but also attended by uh, the Rolling Stones, famously, and uh, I believe Jefferson Airplane there as well. They hired the Hells Angels for security, and this is back when the Hells Angels were all just gacked out of their minds and, you know, looking to beat the shit out of anybody they possibly could. The whole thing was a disaster. At least one person died. There were several injuries. It was a horrible experience for everybody. The Grateful Dead literally didn't even get to play. Like Jesus. things during the stone set is when things really, really went downhill and they had, they had to call it before uh, the grateful dead could even hit the stage. It was, it was the most poorly so, yeah, executed, some... the most poorly executed music festival until Woodstock 99, which will be the most poorly executed music festival uh, until Firefest. Yeah. Um, so 
that's his involvement with the Altamont Free Concert again. It's just kind of tangential, but it's I, I just think it's neat that he was on hand for that. Um, in 1969, Belli hit the front pages again when somebody claimed to be the Zodiac Killer uh, called into the Jim Dunbar show, which was a local uh, TV talk show on the morning is in uh, San Francisco, where Belli was based, and asked to speak to either Melvin Belli or fellow legendary defense attorney F. Lee Bailey. So they arranged things so that Dunbar would get Belli to come on the air and the quote-unquote Zodiac would call back in and talk to Belli. The man did, as he promised, called in and spoke to Belli a few words at a time, then he would hang up and call back. I don't know if he was trying to avoid a trace or, or what, but he would just say a few words, hang up, then call back and, and pick up where he left off. Well, these events are portrayed in the terrific 2007 David Fincher film Zodiac, where Melvin Belli is played by the wonderful Brian Cox. I have exactly that sentence in my notes. Yep. Yeah, there you go. this is... Uh, Melvin Belli uh, has never been, I think, encapsulated better than by Brian Cox's he, portrayal he, of him. Like he pretty he, much was like there's the no Liberace of attorneys. There's no bad Brian Cox performance, but he was basically perfect for this. Yes. Yeah. So later that same year, Belli, this is also in the movie, would receive a letter claiming to be from the Zodiac. This is the famous Christ Mass letter. If you're a Zodiac head. Mm -hmm. Belli uh, was not satisfied, however, with just grabbing the headlines in the legal community. He decided, I should be on the big screen, man. I want to I start doing some acting on the side. So in 1968, he made his first splash uh, by with a very highly publicized appearance on Star Trek as uh, <laughs> Morgan in the episode And the Children Shall Lead. That is like when you're when also, you're when you're getting weird cameos as an attorney, like you have truly entered the elite sphere of attorneys that people actually give a shit about. Mm -hmm. I will never, I will never be invited to appear on Star Trek. I'm pretty sure, which is fine. Uh, you know, he also whatever. Had, yeah, I mean that's that's not something everyone needs. It's fine. I don't I don't feel bitter about in it. The, Can I, can I keep going with this, or would you like to vet for a little while longer? No, it's fine. I'm going to reach through the screen and push that chair over here in a minute. <laughs> so, in 1968, he uh, made appearances himself in the classic uh, piece of counterculture uh, film, Wild in the Streets. Uh, he also appeared as himself in the documentary Gimme Shelter about the mm -hmm. Altamont Free Concert, largely centering around the Rolling Stones. Um, he had guest appearances on uh, the sitcom Arnie in 1972 uh, as a lawyer. Uh, in 1978, Lady of the House. Um, and uh, fittingly in 1991 as a judge in an episode of Murder, She Wrote. He does a pretty good job picking... So they're picking... really leaning heavily into the legal experience yeah. thing. He does a good job picking stuff to appear on. Like, this is all, like, pretty trendy stuff. Yeah. So, um... That really, it, things slowed down for Belli for the next couple decades. He was still doing his acting. He wrote a ton of books. He's got like 15 books out there, um, a, a lot of which sold very well. So this guy is just kind of, you know, he's still practicing, but he's kind of coasting right now. The firm would run into trouble, actually, later on in 1995. Uh, Belli's firm actually had to file for bankruptcy protection as the result of a win. This is one of the weirder things that I've heard of in legal history, but I'm surprised it doesn't happen more often after hearing the logistics. So Belli 
they won a huge class action suit against Dow Corning um, concerning some faulty breast implants that they had manufactured. Belli himself would be made to look like something of a boob when Dow Corning filed for bankruptcy immediately after losing, leaving Belli unable to cover the $5 million they'd advanced to doctors and other expert witnesses. Yeah, no, we we were saying no. We you look like you had something. No, I I I was looking like ah, I just something my mic picked up. That's fascinating that that like would be an issue. Yeah, I mean, like literally, this suit was so huge that Dow Corning's like, you got it all. (laughs) Like, we we don't have enough money to cover what we've been ordered to pay you. So yeah, tough titties, I guess. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so Belli's uh, personal life was just as colorful as his courtroom persona. He was married six times, the first five ending in divorce. His final divorce in 1991 was the stuff of a legend. These proceedings were a fucking circus. Because apparently both Belli and his soon-to-be ex-wife were kind of batshit crazy. This is some of the most acrimonious divorce court proceedings I've ever heard of. And imagine, like, the weight that that carries. Oh, God, yeah. Because that's, like, the maybe the most acrimonious area of the law is family law, specifically divorce shit. Yeah. Yeah, the reason our, why a lot our of dad hurry, does, yeah. Fam- yeah, our dad why... does a lot of family law, and he absolutely hates doing divorce. Yeah, right, that exactly. His favorite thing in the world. That's the reason why a lot of attorneys feel that way. There's some who really enjoy it, and I believe the way our dad described it is like, those attorneys have a sickness of the soul. Yeah. So, um, among these specifics here, Belli accused his ex-wife of having an affair with Archbishop Desmond Tutu, <laughs> and also yeah. throwing one of his dogs off of the Golden Gate Bridge. Oh, poor dog. Really hope that one's not true. Yeah. I kind of doubt any of this is. Yeah. But uh, Belli uh, was in hot water with the judge from the start. He was fined $1,000 for repeatedly referring to his uh, ex-wife as El Trampo in open court. <laughs> that's the that's, pettiest that's, fucking thing I've ever heard. That, there's something to that when it's like a very smart person just intentionally picks the dumbest way to be petty. That tickles my funny bone. El Trampo. <laughs> and at one point, he actually got himself tossed out of the courtroom altogether for accusing the judge of sleeping with his ex-wife's lawyer. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> that is a big, fat contempt charge you're getting with that. I was going to say, like, he's probably he's lucky that, that the judge was nice enough to not just put his ass in jail. There are judges yeah. I know of who would absolutely do that. Well, the judge got him on the back end because he wound up uh, ordering Belli to pay his wife about $15 million. (laughs) Yeah, that's an unforced error, I think, on Belli's part. Far be it for me to tell him how to do his job, but... (laughs) Well, he was old as shit at this point. Although he did get married one more time, and they remained uh, married until uh, Belli passed away. Speaking of which, Belli passed away uh, from pancreatic cancer at his home at the age of 88 in 1996. That brings me to my big question. Imagine you're a big shot personal injury lawyer who's going to do it Belli style and just pull some big flashy stunt in court for the big win. What are you doing? What What's your what's your theatrical argument that you're making? Hmm. 
in my training as a trial attorney, you know, I've always, the ultimate goal, I, I, the, the kind of, the kind of holy grail for a trial attorney. And I think this, this has been discussed. Did this happen on this show where someone won a case by dying in a demonstrative? That sounds so familiar. Yes, Was that Clement Vallandigham? Clement Vallandigham. Yeah. yeah, I don't know how to top Clement Vallandigham on that. Other than I want something that involves like bring in like a full gospel chorus. You know what I mean? <laughs> like full grandiose. Like I I detest the mass singer, but like that level of production. You know, I want there to be a musical number. I want there to be a chorus of people singing behind me. And I mean, we're we're raising the roof off this fucking place, and then I we're die in the, the process. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no way, no way, I'm losing. Yeah, uh, I'm not ashamed to say that I think that this is the only way that I would win a court case. Um, I'm going full SpongeBob. I'm gonna be the guy dressed up like he has uh, uh, paper bones and glass skin, or yeah. uh, the other way around. I'm like. I've got the neck brace on, my arms in a sling, my legs in a cast. I'm going like full like if 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 this injury happened to my client, imagine what it could have done to someone like me. Like I'm really tugging at your heartstrings to like lean my way and just being like an absolute like dick about it. <laughs> That's some Saul Goodman shit. Yeah. Yeah. So my idea was kind of uh similar to Alex's <coughs> in that but I'm not going to put myself in harm's way. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to assume it's like the, the Escola case where it's a faulty bottle that explodes. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to place uh, said faulty bottle on the judge's bench before we begin the trial. And when he grabs the bottle to take a nice refreshing swig of Coca-Cola, it's going to uh, explode and blow his hand off. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be like, see? See? Can happen to anybody. <laughs> Or you're promptly arrested for planting a bomb in a Coke bottle. But God damn it, I won. No, it, it's just a, it's just going to be another faulty bottle. I'm just going to find another defective bottle that's going to blow. You're not, you're not like planting like, like to make sure it happens. I mean, I, I don't know. I guess I could put like a cheap, like an M80 under there or something. But <laughs> uh, I feel like that weakens my argument if anyone catches that. I'll tell a story I heard from um. Uh, a judge in a very, very rural uh, county um, that there was a bench trial, which is just a trial where there's no jury. You're just arguing to the judge on like a misdemeanor, careless and imprudent driving, causing an accident case um, where the defendant represented himself. And Ooh. the way the judge put it, the guy was like clearly guilty and was not looking at like, you know, jail time or anything like that. But as his trial, the big thing he had planned, and the way this courtroom is set up, it's like a very, it almost looks more like a conference room. It's very closed off. The judge's, um, the judge's bench is just like right there in front of you. It's, it's like lower to the ground. And this guy brought in like little Hot Wheels, and he like put him up on uh, the bench, and he wanted the cop as part of his cross-examination to like demonstrate, like play with the little cars to show how it all played out. And the judge was just so tickled by it that he made the cop do all of it. <laughs> the same judge. If, if cops weren't despicable, that would have been that guy's best day yeah. in the office ever. Yeah. Been like, I get to play with Hot Wheels. This, 
Yeah, th- this judge also told me that um, in his first trial when he was a, a defense attorney, um, it involved a gun and he was doing a demonstrative with the gun and he like wasn't thinking hard enough. Like he was very inexperienced at this point. He wasn't thinking hard enough about what he was doing. So at one point he like pointed this shotgun at the entire jury without even thinking about what he was <laughs> oh doing. Oh my god! <laughs> just yell and die. Right <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> Yeah, the truth is 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 funnier than anything we could imagine. A lot of times, unfortunately. Well, those are good answers. Those are good answers, and I I can't wait to hear all of you making headlines as uh, personal injury attorneys very soon. And if you if any of you have any any thoughts about what you do, feel free to reach out at uh, here's a mailbox at gmail dot com. Um, well, that brings an end to our uh, uh, terrific trio of guys for this week, and I suppose that brings an end to this episode then as well. So. Um, let's do what we always do. Let's go around the horn and hawk our shit. Jack John, where can the people find you? People can find me on Twitter at Jack John, uh, uh, Jack John Jose. I forgot my own Twitter handle for a second. You can find me on my Twitch account at Jack John Plays Games. I'm doing a big, uh, subathon, uh, drive, uh, next week on the, uh, 26th, where I'm going to be, uh, playing a shit ton of games for a couple days straight, uh, to help raise money for the baby coming up. Uh, so please uh, check that out if you can. And uh, also check out Here's an Adventure, where we all play D&D together uh, and play silly characters. All right, Cody, where can the people find you? Uh, you can find me over on Twitter. I'm at SonOfGravy42069. Uh, you can find me uh, weekly here on Here's a Guy on Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Uh, you can find me on Here's an Adventure as well. It's the three of us and our good friend Pookie. Um, and maybe rejoined by Kelsey by the time we actually get to do anything. Um Perhaps some changes in the works there will give you any information as soon as it comes to us. And you can also find me right here in my big comfy chair being napped upon by my cat. That's right. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at Turpin for Prez. That's Turpin, the number four, P-R-E-Z. Um, you can also follow the podcast account. It's at Here's a Guy Pod. Um, and as mentioned a couple times this episode, feel free to reach out at our mailbox. Here's a mailbox at gmail.com. All right. Well, um, Boy, what a what a fun one that was. Um, hopefully, everybody enjoyed it as much as we did. Um, to bring us home, Cody, do you have a tagline? I surely do. All right, sounds good. Well, thank you all for being here. Hope to have you back again with us next week. And Cody, hit us with that tagline, please. Mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be lawyers. That's right. Bye, daddies. <laughs> <laughs>